The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot 2.0 goes well with both red and white and is perfect with the workout of your choice. Our hosts are Aaron Berlin, a former Kansas Jayhawk who believes the Orlando Magic will win the championship. Eventually. (laughs) His partner is Otto Strong, a man who has covered the NBA since before Dennis Rodman got his first tattoo. Fellas? Thanks so much, Darlene. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is back. We are talking Last Dance episodes five and six. And with that, we have a really fun interview. A former co-worker of mine, as well as someone who is very near and dear to those Bulls teams and Magic teams when he was 15 years old. He was a kid reporter. Amar Shaw will join the program. But before we get to that, I want to go ahead and welcome in my co-host. His name is Otto Strong, and he is rocking his Jordan ones. <laughs> Otto, how's it going? Uh, the, yeah, the Jordan ones were were they're a little tight these days. <laughs> Did you ever own a pair of those? Uh, so th- thank you for this. I owned the originals, and I got to say, uh, I was so I was the kid who, when you went to the high school, everybody looked at me because I wasn't wearing the Stan Smiths. Yeah, uh, which which is also an indicator of just how old I really am, or <laughs> so. just how cool you were, right? Uh, I, like, yeah, it, was... like it can go both ways, you know. Like yeah. it can it can show age, but it can also show that you were just very forward thinking. Oh, I, I, you know, the most, you know, the most, of course. <laughs> but but yeah, see, seeing seeing uh, seeing MJ, you know, rocking the rocking the ones at, at his last uh, Garden appearance in in uh, uh, from this weekend's episodes of the Last Dance, you know, definitely brought me back. Um, what were your, what were your thoughts on the, on the episodes? So the, the, the first episode, episode five, I thought was phenomenal, especially with the way that they start with the all-star game in Madison square garden. They start with the Kobe interview, which, you know, pulled on mm-hmm. a lot of heartstrings and also the David Stern interview, which was just very near and dear, I think to a lot of people and hit a lot of people really hard. But the episodes were so well constructed that I finally feel like we're getting to some of the juice of the story. You know, we're starting to see a little bit of the flaws in maybe that team and how some of the cracks came about, you know, and some of the storylines that weren't necessarily pursued in those first four episodes. Uh, so basically what I'm saying is we're starting to get a little bit of the meat on the bone that I think we've all been wanting to know, you know, about MJ as a person and MJ with that team. And I think we'll get a little bit more of that in episode seven and eight. But it was just because they focused on so much of that first three P it was just phenomenal TV. And to hear a little bit more about the backstory of how he signed with Nike and how they wanted to kind of portray his image and the being like Mike image and, you know, the perfected athlete that doesn't exist now. So to see them go down that route was just very interesting to me. Yeah. I, I love the, uh, the, the, the whole competition angle. I and mean, then, you know, pulling back to, talking about 20 bucks on the golf course or flipping quarters with the security staff. Um, you know, it, it, it's, to me, it spoke volumes about just, just, you know, who he really is at his core and, uh, and just how much he just 
competition just fuels him regardless of basketball or no basketball or whether he's with sitting with other millionaires or, or sitting with, you know, guys who are, who are collecting an hourly wage. You know, it was, it was amazing to, to kind of get that raw look at that. Yeah. And, you know, and that's an interesting aspect because so many people, when they think of professional athletes, they think how the money changes them. But for the most part, it didn't change Michael, right? Like the one thing that fueled him and the one thing that drove him each and every day was that he just flat out wanted to be better at you than whatever it was that he was doing. It didn't matter if it was basketball. It didn't matter if it was a quarters game in the backyard with securities guys. But it also just showed that he wanted more than anything to almost just be a normal person. You know, the, the instance I think of, I can't remember if it was the fifth or the sixth episode, you know, you really start to see just how the media circus around him was changing from, you know, those late 80s days and into the early 90s, where he was really becoming a phenomenon. And they show him in his hotel room and there's nobody else there. Right. And he says, it's really the one place and I'm paraphrasing of course, but it's the one place where he can be himself, you know, because the second he leaves that room, you know, the cameras are on and he has to be like Mike. And it just shows that how exhausting it was then. But then when you think about it for today's athlete and the things that they go through, whether you're LeBron or you're the last guy on the bench, you know, as a pro athlete, you are always on and you always have this, this image that you need to portray, right? Yeah. You're always on these days, but for some, I mean, look, he, he was, he was, <laughs> he was the goat. And I mean, there's just never going to be anything else like it. I mean, just the amount of pressure as he said was on him. Like, like the, the moment that kind of struck me, he, he's still on the couch, just chilling. The elevator doors open the ding, the, the ding goes off in the elevator. And that's like, it's like the cattle call or just like everybody just, and he turns the corner, walks into the lobby and they're like 300 people standing there, or it seemed like there were 300 people standing there. Um, and I'm, and I'm not saying that that doesn't, that doesn't happen now, but it, it happens to me just as a kind of a singular, um, entity that, that he was with regard to playing at that time that he could command that kind of, um, that, that aura of, of how people react to him. Uh, as he, you know, does whatever he's done, doing, rolling through, you know, rolling through a lobby or walking to a bus, doesn't matter. What did you think about the Dream Team stuff? Because to me, that was some of the most interesting aspects of it. You know, they show that practice and a lot of people, and I think ESPN and numerous outlets have written a story about this, about how it was probably the greatest game that nobody ever saw. You know, uh, NBA Entertainment had footage of that and we got to see a little bit about that. But what did you just think about the little bit of a peek behind the curtain of what we saw the Dream Team? So, so back, so I guess going back 10 years ago before, before his uh, Hall of Fame induction, uh, we, we did a, uh, when I was with ESPN, we did a, a special um, standalone book. So I guess it was you know, over 10 years ago now. Um, and, and the thing about it was that was, those were words and those were pictures. Those were not moving pictures and they didn't yeah. have the sound. So it, it definitely added a, a, a very, uh, added a layer of depth and richness that, that we obviously couldn't portray, you know, when, when we did, when we did our book. Um, and it was just amazing to see magic talking about like the moment that he was going MJ in practice. Cause we, you know, cause we all heard about these, this legendary, these legendary games, these, you know, the greatest games, as you said, never, never seen. And, you know, just watching magic trying to shake his hand, <laughs> shake his head, just like, I knew I shouldn't have done this, but, you know, and waking the sleeping giant here. And, and then he just rolled what rattled off like the next eight points. Um, you know, and, and these are not like 
eight points scored against other guys in the playground. These are eight <laughs> points scored against the other nine best basketball players on the planet. So, I mean, that was just crazy. Did it show you maybe a little bit about what it was like to be a teammate of Mike's and how hard that was and how demanding that had to be? Because you have to think about it. By the end of the, the third championship at their first three-peat, I would imagine there were numerous um, fellow teammates that were exhausted about being his teammates. And to get that kind of peak of just how the drive had to be there each and every day to be perfect. And, you know, people have talked about how LeBron is in practice and how hard he can be on his teammates. But, you know, to live up to that excellence is a very tough thing. Well, you, you know, you saw it. You saw John Paxson kind of, you know, talk about that a little bit. You heard Kerr talk about that a little bit. And, you know, other guys kind of kind of went there uh, with with respect to that. And, you know, the Dream Team, like, I, I know our producers are, are we have one producer who um, uh, is a Detroit fan. And so the whole bit about Isaiah, um, you know, not being on the team, uh, where, regardless of where, where you come down with that, I'm sure we're going to get a comment in, in the ear in a minute, but <laughs> regardless of where you come down on that, you know, it was just a, a fascinating uh, look at how demanding, you know, wh- regardless of what team you're on. Because on the Olympic team, they played hard in practice, and then he was going to play cards for like, you know, <laughs> two or three hours into the, into, you know, went to the wee hours of the morning. So, I mean, that's just, that's just, but I guess that's what you, that's what you sign up with when you, when you're playing with the greatest. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're not only kind of striving for greatness, but you're protecting a legacy too. And I think that's something that all those players understood. And certainly that dream team knew going into that Olympics that they had to do something that hadn't been done in a long time. So, all right, enough last dance. Let's talk a little bit more about someone who covered the last dance. Let's get to it. Well, this segment should be a lot of fun as not only do I get to reminisce with a former coworker of mine, but Otto gets to catch up with a former ESPN compadre as well. His name is Amar Shah. And, you know, he has one of the more interesting takes on this whole Last Dance documentary and specifically the Orlando Magic too. But before we get into that, Amar, how's it going? And, you know, how has kind of reliving this whole Last Dance document docuseries been for you? Hey, guys, it's been uh, it's been an actual blast reliving some of the uh, crazy stories of uh, of my uh, childhood and the uh, the start of my career. So it's been really fun each week uh, kind of seeing all of these, you know, all of this archival video and all of these stories replayed for uh, for an audience, um, you know, and so it's been a, it's been a it's been a real thrill. Definitely have yeah. the popcorn uh, and the, uh, you know, going on. So it's been fantastic. I was going to say, you know, a lot of us when we're 14 or 15 years old and we're kind of experiencing sophomore year, you know, our main concerns are how are we going to make passing grades and are we going to make the varsity basketball or baseball team? But for you, it was very different. You were an aspiring journalist at the time. Just kind of take us through that sophomore year for you, for you, because it really was something special. Yeah. So it actually started off during the tail end of my, uh, my freshman year. So um, if you go back to May 8th, 1995 uh we're in the last month of uh freshman year we're in the ninth grade center and it's during lunch and all of a sudden um the floodgate uh opens up and all these kids start pouring in saying that the chicago bulls are in town and you have to understand the day before was the day that nick anderson picked michael jordan's pocket and it was the day that reggie miller scored eight points in like nine seconds so i'm wearing my knicks uh sweatshirt repping my team versus you know a horde of magic fans and uh, one of my friends who's in a number 45 jersey comes in and he's completely going crazy 
um, that, you know, one of the most popular sports teams are in our high school gym practicing. So I'm in a state of complete belief. So all of us kind of run over to uh, the ninth grade uh, to the school gym. And there is like this giant, you know, mirrors bust that looks like a bumblebee out there. And at that point, I'm not even in the journalism school or the journalism class yet. But, um, you know, I just, you know, and they weren't allowing anybody in. There's security everywhere. There's media everywhere. And, you know, there's just, uh, you know, it's just a mess. So I'm thinking to myself, how do I get into that gym um, by any means necessary? So I run over to uh, the journalism department and I get a note signed by our journalism teacher allowing me into the gym. So I have this little notepad. And somehow, some way, I get into the lobby of the gym with all these media people around, you know, from ESPN and Fox Sports and, you know, Chicago media and local media. And then, bam, the door opens up, and then we see Michael Jordan running past us with security uh, to get outside. So um, it's crazy. So everyone else is kind of uh, uh, around, you know, these hordes of journalists are gathered in groups and you know, there's Scotty, Pippen, Horace Grant, B.J. Armstrong, and Phil Jackson. So at this point, you know, I don't. I have a little notepad with me, and I'm thinking, where am I going to go, and who am I going to interview? And then I see B.J. kind of standing there, uh, putting his glasses on, um, and then I notice that his front teeth are knocked out. And I was like, oh, you know, jokingly, I was like, hey, B.J., what happened to your teeth? And he looks at me with this scowl and walks away. And so that first interview didn't go very well. And then I try to go over to Scotty, but there's way too many people around him. Um, and then I find Phil Jackson, who's kind of standing there, you know, he's like six, seven, he's this really tall dude. And I'm five foot, you know, not even five feet. I'm going to lie. I was four eleven at the time. Um, and then uh, I kind of sneak my way through and I throw him a question. I think it was something about who is the X factor of the, uh, of the series. And he kind of looks up, he looks down, and then he sees me and he sees my uh, Nick sweatshirt and he sees the logo and he basically turns it, he says, turns this shit around and then in front of everyone. And there was a complete, like everyone starts cracking up and I'm, you know, flushed with embarrassment. But somehow I remembered, you know, obviously he played for the Knicks. And so I, I just asked my question and he's just asking, well, you know, what publication do you write for? And I said, the Posture Journal. And he kind of chuckled and laughed. So then after that, you know, everybody is actually interviewing me, including Sam Smith, who uh, is very well, you know, documented in the, uh, you know, in, uh, in the last dance. And so, you know, all these Chicago media are asking me really, you know, funny questions about what it's like to, you know, to have Phil Jackson kind of, you know, initiate you into the world of journalism. And then, um, so that was fun. So then like a day later, I'm in my, uh, my geography or history class. And I'm summoned by the principal to the office. I think I'm in trouble for some reason. But then I realize um, there's a phone call for me. And it's from WMVP in Chicago. And so they have a, a, a at the time, their show was hosted by Norm Van Leer, who was the guard for the Bulls. And then he had done some radio work as well. And so they wanted to interview me. And so for the rest of that summer, um, for that playoffs, I ended up being their playoff correspondent. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was crazy. Um, to have that happen at that point in time. That, that was amazing. So, <laughs> so, so, so here's what I'm wondering. First thing I'm wondering is, damn, I wish there were iPhones. I'm sure you were <laughs> wishing that they had phones at that point where you could, you know, get some of this stuff uh, in real time. But so the real question is, 
So how at, at age 14 are you so, com so composed that you're, you know, you go in not knowing you're going to do this to the point where you're doing it and then you become the subject of, of everything? I mean, what is like that like for someone, you know, take us back to when you were 14, thinking, what are you thinking? Yeah, so at 13 or 14, you know, I wanted to be uh, a sports journalist. I wanted to be Bob Costas or Ahmad Rashad or, you know, I wanted to be an NBA beat reporter. And so, you know, I was, you know, fully intent on, you know, making sure I get a press pass to, you know, like the magic at some point. And so um, sometimes, you know, the opportunity uh, comes up in the funniest ways possible. And the fact that it had to do with, uh, you know, one of the most famous sports teams of all time was just crazy because at that point, the, the there weren't many practice facilities um, around Orlando. And so our gym had been used um, by a couple of teams at that point. Um, including the Pacers. The Bulls had actually practiced there the year before. And I remember uh, the story was that uh, Jerry Krause actually yelled at the kids to get out of the gym. And so, um, you know, the fact that they were there at that point in time was just, you know, an amazing, uh, you know, degree of luck for me. And, you know, I just, you know, some, you know, I, I seize the opportunity and, you know, I, uh, you know, the fact that Phil Jackson played for the Knicks and the fact that I was wearing a, you know, a Knicks jersey at the time um, or Knicks sweatshirt was crazy because my wardrobe was basically, you know, Knicks jerseys. You know, I had my Starks, my Mason and my Ewing jerseys as my carousel of, uh, of clothing that I had. And so um, it was just pretty funny that it all kind of tied in together. And then, um, you know, yeah, so at that point, it was just it was just a lot of luck. But, you know, at the same time, it was something that I was passionate about. Um, even at, you know, age 11, 12, 13, because I knew I wasn't going to be a basketball player no matter how hard I tried. I knew I was, even Muggsy was going to be a giant in my eyes. You know, uh, Amar, obviously we knew each other prior to this, but one thing I saw when you, you when you tweeted those pictures on your timeline, and for our listeners who haven't seen them, you can go to Amar Shaw, and I, I think it's Amar Shaw-ism at the end of it, and look at the pictures that he tweeted, but where do you keep these? Are they framed in your house? Did you just have them in a stack? Tell us about who took the pictures and then where you keep them. It was crazy. I didn't even know those photos had been taken. Um, the ones, especially that day, uh, the bulls came uh, to the gym. Um, but one of our staff photographers from the school paper took it. And when the newspaper article came out, I think someone else actually ended up writing it. Um, there I was um, interviewing BJ Armstrong. And so um, I definitely, I have that picture actually at, um, at home. Um, the way the circle of life works is uh, when I got out of college and got my first job at ESPN, BJ was actually an, uh, an analyst for a little while on NBA Fast Break, and I showed him the photo and he signed it. And so I have that. And then um, the other story was a year later, um, I had been a correspondent for Slam Magazine, and one of my uh, contacts at the Magic told me the Bulls would be back in the gym um, a year later, but this time nobody knew about it. It was on a Saturday morning at eight o'clock. Um, and this was during where the, you know, the Bulls 72 win season. And, um, you know, there I am with the principal and his kid and getting into a gym where there's nobody there, except this time, Michael was there. Scotty was there, Ron Harper, Tony Kukoc, um, and Phil and it, Dennis Rodman. And it was a completely different atmosphere where, um, I got a chance to interview Michael one-on-one. -on -one. I think I asked him two questions and then he told me, Hey kid, I got to go for tea time. And then, uh, he was off to play golf, but then Scotty and Ron Harper stuck around for a little bit. So I talked to them and even got a chance to converse with Dennis Rodman, who at that time was, you know, known as this crazy individual. And, then, um, 
so it was pretty awesome that, you know, a year later I got a chance to actually interview MJ one on one. This time I brought my camera and, you know, whoever was there took a couple photos and, you know, I definitely keep them at home. They're uh they're a cool keepsake to to showcase to uh you know, to my son who right now knows Michael from uh Space Jam and not from playing basketball. Hey, hey so so Mark, uh, let me ask you, um your favorite uh, moment that either was shown on the documentary so far or a moment that you wish would have been shown or something else that you would want to share. Do you have a uh either one? Oh, I'm I'm gonna be hated for this because it's the only thing Knicks fans have to look forward to, and that was the dunk by John Starks, um, <laughs> in the '93 playoffs. Um, no matter how many times Ewing gets dunked on, I have that John Starks poster actually in my house right now, framed. And to me, it is my favorite moment of the documentary is to showcase people that you know we do have something uh, to cling to. And it may not be six rings, but it is that one dunk that we can live over and over again, even though it may be overrated. So I'm going to go back to that. I'm going to go back to that period of time. So the, I was; those were my Knicks fans' years. I, I grew up on Long Island, and uh, I was—I could tell you—I was walking down uh, or up the Upper West Side uh, while Charles Smith was <laughs> trying to nail, <laughs> trying to land that layup with with a friend of mine from college. So it, it's—it's—I I feel your pain, and I know—and know, I know you feel mine. <laughs> Oh, it is. And like, you know, with my, my dad came to, uh, to America in 1968. Uh, he came to Queens and he grew up essentially with the greatest run of New York sports of sports. You know, he had the Mets, he had the Jets, he had the Knicks, you know, during those Red Holzman days of the Busher and Frazier and Clyde and Willis Reed and, and you know, Phil Jackson. And so mm-hmm. I never got a chance to experience that. So I still have to vicariously live through those small moments of New York Knicks fandom you know, through those years. And so, you know, watching the Bulls completely annihilate them each time, you know, I can get into arguments all the time. If the Knicks had Xavier McDaniel, and if he hadn't signed with the Celtics during the 93 season and we didn't have Charles Smith, you know, we might be writing a different tale. You know, Mark, one of the amazing, amazing things is, is that when you worked with the Magic, you and I would sit and we would talk about just kind of your history with the organization and how you got started. You know, one thing that a, people, a lot of people don't know is, you know, you talked about just trying to get press passes with the Magic and covering the NBA in some way, shape, or form. And as a 15-year-old, that almost seems unfathomable. But for you, it happened, and you have a special relationship with Shaq. Can you just kind of explain that to our listeners and kind of go into that story a little bit? Absolutely. So one of the so after that summer of of you know of being able to you know interview the Bulls and getting a chance you know a real taste of you know the national media, I wanted to make sure that, um, you know, I got a chance to cover, you know, a magic game or a professional basketball game. So in, during the preseason of 1995, I think during the, there is a lockout, people forget about that. Um, I actually, um, I remember faxing in a request to Alex Martins, who was then running media relations for the Orlando magic, uh, for a press pass for my photographer and for me as a reporter. And so I would continuously harass them every day when I got home from school to see if they would green light me. So finally, I was given a press pass in, uh, to a Miami Heat game. And um, so in October of 95, I got a chance to go to my first Orlando Magic game as a member of the working press. Um, and lo and behold, um, I walk into the locker room and there's Shaq and he's surrounded by a couple of the reporters and he kind of looks at me and he's like, I don't talk to the media. And I'm like, you're already talking to the media. And he's like, all right, go over to that room and I'll talk to you. So 
I ended up getting a one-on interview with Shaq uh, for about 30 minutes. Uh, we talked about everything. And this was the game that he actually, his hand, his thumb got broken by Matt Geiger. So I ended up getting the only, the last interview Shaq did before he got hurt. And so throughout, through that season, I ended up forming a friendship with Shaq um, that um, ended up, ended up being a uh, correspondent for Slam Magazine uh, covering the NBA. I hung out with Shaq during uh, Christmas during his Shaq Clause, and Shaq actually came to my house, took me on a shopping spree, got a chance to hang out with him. So we have a family portrait of my folks um, with Shaq playing basketball with us and my brother. And, um, you know, and after that, we ended up, I ended up telling that story to Sports Illustrated for Kids, and we were on the cover of that magazine in May of uh, 1996. So my, uh, my goal is to help replicate that photo where he's holding me up wearing his jersey um, during that issue. And so uh, and this was the season before he left for L.A. Uh, that summer. So we ended up forming a pretty cool friendship during that time period. And then the way, you know, life works, um, I moved back to uh, Orlando after living in L.A. to run social media for the Orlando Magic. And I got a chance to reunite with Shaq at the All-Star Game. Uh, where we kind of took a photo at that time too, and so um, yeah, and I'm like I said, I was uh, finished the novel uh, about that time period. It's my almost famous meets uh, um, fresh off the boat, and uh, kind of capture a lot of what happened during that year um, in that in that manuscript. So um, it was really cool though uh, to get that opportunity, and um, you know I owe Shaq a lot, and then uh, you know for for jump starting my career along with the Chicago Bulls. Yeah, and personally, I will argue it's probably the most famous SI for Kids cover ever. You know, when you think about it, when you think about what Shaq was and then just kind of the perception of the picture, what was that photo shoot like? How'd it go? The photo shoot was crazy because it was set up in the media center of uh, Dr. Phillips High School. And so this was, I think, in March um, of 1996, where Shaq was uh, basically rode in with his, I think, his 600 SL convertible at the time and everyone is going bonkers around school that Shaq is on campus. And so, um, you know, we had security there and then ended up doing the photo shoot in the, uh, in the media center. So I'm wearing his uniform at that time period. Um, and we had um, uh, an Apple box, which I was standing on that at that time they digitally photoshopped out, which was pretty cool. And so, um, so yeah, for that afternoon, just did a whole photo shoot and I had no idea that it was actually gonna be the cover. I knew they were going to use the article, but then, you know, they surprised me by telling me that uh, they were going to use those photos for, for the magazine cover. And, you know, uh, it was, it was, it's pretty cool. Um, I always like to joke that um, you could always find me on eBay being sold uh, for like seven or eight ninety nine, and then, there, you know, and, or for more. And so um, that's a fun little anecdote I can, I can tell people. You got, you, you need to start getting some royalties from those sales need to make sure that your agent or someone gets in contact with those people and make sure you get some cuts from that. I do. Um, especially <laughs> when, uh, you know, uh, but it's cool at being able to like, you know, to find links to like where I can buy myself, um, off eBay and people don't realize that I'm buying a photo of me, but, uh, you know, <laughs> absolutely. Hey, Amari, does the book have a name and does it have a release date yet? The book does have a name. It's called wish I was a baller after the ski song. Um, publication date, um, you know, going to work with a couple agents and then, um, going to look for a, a publishing house. And so, you know, finalizing, uh, the next, uh, version of it. And then hopefully, you know, the way publication or publishing works, it's probably going to be a 
2021 or 2022 release, but um, I'm excited by uh, by 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 making this dream come true. Absolutely, it's something we look forward to reading, and you can find it on Amazon and in bookstores hopefully soon, hopefully in 2021. Hey, Amar, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us, hearing these stories, and kind of uh, going through your history not only with the Bulls but with that Magic team. It was a joy to listen to. Hey guys, thanks again. It was great catching up with all of you. That was dope. <laughs> Well, that was a really cool interview. Um, so ESPN has his stuff on jerseys. And, you know, I'm a guy who has, you know, loves to love and hate on jerseys, as I, I think most fans do. Um, uh, so, Aaron, have you have you seen this? Or you know you've seen this you because we talked about it. Have you have thoughts on uh, which jerseys you like or don't like? Well, Otto, you know, if there's one thing the Internet loves, it's debate. And then it's jerseys, right? Like everybody just loves talking fashion about whatever it is. And, you know, the NBA, one of the amazing things is ESPN right now is doing this series. It's because it's the 74th season of the NBA. They're essentially putting out articles or pieces that have 74 tidbits. And one of them was the 74th best jerseys, like you said. And I'm looking at these and my biggest complaint and I'm not sure how you felt about these. And I know some people didn't love those old Toronto jerseys that had the big dinosaur on the front, you know, that had Vince Carter. I think it was like 94, 95, that had the big dino on them. And then it also had it on the court. How are those barely in the top 15? Because to me, that's a top five jersey of all time. It's one of those jerseys. It's the Denver Nuggets skyline one that also has all the different colors on it. You have the Magic jerseys from their 94-95 finals campaign. You know, the blues, the whites. I could take or leave the blacks. I like the blues and the whites. And then, you know, the Showtime Lakers are good ones as well. But those are just some of my faves. So, I mean, the whole Jurassic Park, I guess this is where we kind of dovetail into an old school, new school segment. because Yeah, and the Raptors have completely kind of just gone away from that whole aspect of it. They were the throwbacks. Man, those jerseys were great. Oh, they were they were throwbacks. I mean, I might say they should have been thrown out, but but that's, you know. That's... <laughs> you weren't a fan? What was um, your beef uh, with them? I, I don't Come know. On. I mean, it's, look, I'm it a, a Raptor on it. I, I yeah I, I get it a raptor playing basketball and then like the whole you know I, like, yeah and it, it had a basketball it, in its claw like dinos have baby hands so for it to be able to paw a basketball was tremendous okay so how many people had to die to put the jersey on the raptor could we like talk about that we're really gonna go there you know <laughs> and I'm just saying it's one of the best cartoons I think any team's had for a logo yeah and how do you tell the ra- uh, you know a raptor if we, you know, let's 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 you know, go in let's go in how do you how do you tell a raptor you know, oh, that's a charge. Oh, what? Okay, I'm going to rip your head off. And, you know, <laughs> so you go through like a thousand officials a night. But yeah, no, but, but it looked cool on the jersey. So that's all that mattered. It looked cool. Yeah, yeah I look good, so. play good, right? Like that's a thing. <laughs> well, like, uh, that's the moniker did, I always live by. Well, did, oh, did they? <laughs> they were, those weren't, those weren't the, the best Raptor teams. I mean, not, not all, not all of them at least. But I mean, look, my jerseys were, uh, I'm, I'm more of a classic old school guy. So I liked, um, I liked actually uh, the, the, the royal blue, uh, if it's royal blue, but let's go with blue, solid blue Lakers, um, the ones Ooh. that kind of popularized by, by, popularized by Jerry West. That that's one of that's one of my all time faves. Um, you know, and I loved seeing you know the, the the Kobe version of that. You know, in years later, in, you know, in later years, that was pretty cool. Um, the, you know, some of the Knicks jerseys were good, some not. Um, I like the ones with the block of lettering. I also like when the yeah, they had the uh, the NY. Because I'm a Yankees fan, so anytime you can incorporate that into your logo, you know it's all good. But, um, but yeah, on on the on the flip side, um, 
that that and I, I kind of had put had put it out of my mind, but that wizard's jersey, the gold on black. What the hell was that? Oh man, that? those those were bad. The ones that like Gilbert Arenas wore. Yeah. Those yeah. were some of the worst. So ESPN also did the worst 10 jerseys. And, you know, one of the ones that I immediately was drawn to, and I didn't think that, you know, recent jerseys would make this list, but the Mavs city jerseys. And I know you have a special place in your heart right now for the Dallas Mavericks and that whole Metroplex. But those city jerseys are so bad. It's a joke. Well, I think that's the real reason why Luca keeps ripping them off. That's what I think it is. It's got to be it. It's got to be the jersey. Uh, just so you know, the number one worst jersey of all time. Can you guess it? And can you guess the franchise? You don't have to guess the exact jersey, but can you guess guess the franchise? Well, I, I peaked, so it's gonna be it's gonna be Sacramento. It's gonna be Sacramento. Those are pretty bad. Sacramento. Those are yeah. miserable. I, yeah. If I was an NBA player, I never would have put those on. I would have just been like, but, I'm not doing it. But here's the thing, Sacramento. You kind of get a golden jersey because that's like the Gold Rush State. I don't get do it you for know? do you because like the Warriors <laughs> are Golden State like they take that don't they? Uh, and plus the Kings are really from Kansas City anyway, so technically. Oh, uh, see, so that's here, it, here it comes. Yeah, here it comes. It's a case. Those, like they, what they should have done is rock those weird like Kansas City Omaha jerseys hmm. they had that when they did the split. But anyway, I digress. I digress. I digress. Well, well digress. I get digest. Whatever, whatever, whatever you want to, whatever you want to go with. Um, I, I think, I don't know, but I think we kind of have a show. I think we have a show here. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe next time we'll debate team names because, because we, we could, we, oh, could. we, oh, we can go on that for hours. I know, I know, I know. So, yeah. so, and days, so we're, maybe weeks. Uh, we have quarantine to deal with. So we can do that. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's about time for me. That's, it's about 35 minutes. I have to wash my hands now. So, so, uh, <laughs> on, on that note, uh, we're going to say this is another edition of Catch and Shoot 2.0. We want to thank our producers, Bruce Bernstein and Scott Turkin, and our editor, Ben Wolfen. Oh, and a special thanks to Omar Shaw for joining us today. It was great to hear his tale about that Bulls team and also his story with Shaq. It was a lot of fun. You can go follow him on Twitter. Just search Omar Shaw. He will come right up. And as always, just a reminder, we want you guys to check out all of our great programming here on Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Weiss Show drops each and every Monday. They are followed by Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams. You know Otto and I are back on Wednesdays. Just a reminder, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks drops on Thursdays. And then our flagship show, the Pure Hoops Podcast with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman is every single Friday. As always, we want to thank all of our essential workers, doctors, nurses, anyone out there on the front lines for us. We appreciate everything you guys are doing. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please rate, subscribe, share it with all your friends. Otto and I are back next week. So everybody stay safe and healthy and enjoy this week. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.